Do you love racing? Then you've come to the right place. We discuss current topics in most asphalt series, as well as deep dives into the history of racing, race cars, and the drivers. I'm NASCAR driver Derek Cope. I share some of my personal stories, as well as highlighting those people that shaped my career and others. I'm Alicia Cope, and we also take on controversial and engaging topics on many subjects, including NASCAR, as well as tips and tricks that have worked for us in building teams from scratch, keeping relationships, and finding new roads. Hopefully our experiences will inspire you to reach your own goals. Let's get started. Welcome back to Race Theory. This is episode 34 and our continuation of uh, probably one of the most exciting, our first opportunity to have a guest speaker, but to have, you know, uh, a man of your magnitude here, uh, Waddell Wilson, part two. And uh, we were just discussing kind of off the air here about the Daytona 500, you know, we're in my office looking at a lot of this stuff and it really is, you know, probably the, it's the biggest thing from a driver's standpoint. And I think crew chiefs as well, that means so much, there's so much emphasis put on the Daytona 500 and you have enormous amount of opportunities to have been there. You've won it so many times. Tell me how many times, I mean, I, I think you, you said seven or so times that you really were involved to win that race. Right. Seven times. Yeah. So tell, tell us, you know, enlighten everybody of our listeners about those specific <coughs> drivers and the experiences of those 500 wins. Well, the first time I was at Daytona in, in uh, 63, I was on Fireball's car. Fireball and, Roberts. Yep. And uh, <laughs> he was an amazing guy. And, and the media loved the guy. But he was great to work with. He'd come in over the morning and sit on his work bench. And back then, those drivers didn't have no place to hide in motorhomes and things like that. And uh, so anyways, race morning, he's sitting down there on, on pit wall. And he'd say, now, what else? When you come down pit road and tell you, wherever you go with that signboard, you know, I'm going to follow you. And he told me that two or three times. I said, okay, I got it. So, you know, back then we didn't have radios. So we had to do the signboards. So he was coming in for the last pit stop. And when he was coming at me, he had them old drum brakes and wasn't no pit road speed or nothing <laughs> like that. And I see him get clicks to me and I'm saying, dang, you can't stop that thing. And I can't go right or left because he's going to follow me. And uh, like I said, I was very athletic in high school and sports and all. And I jumped straight up. He run up underneath me. And I landed back on the windshield. I rolled off the windshield. And he, and he never had a sort of word about it. But we ended up in Junior Johnson lap the field. And then Lorenzen was one of our team cars. So he let Lorenzen get back in, in the lead lap. And then he almost beat us at the end. But anyway, Fireball won the race, but he never did say any word to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know back then, you know, I mean, the speeds that we had, we made, you know, coming down pit road, I mean, with no pit road speed like there is today, you come down there as fast as you could and you had oh, yeah. to find your spot in a sea of, of people, right? And then mm -hmm. get her woed down and get her in a pit stall. And uh, that was, that was quite a chore back then. It was a challenge for yeah, you guys. It was, yeah. And then we're trying to direct you in, so, you know. Yeah. And pit signs, like you say, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a, it was amazing. And people don't realize all the intricacies of how it was back then with no pit road speeds, how dangerous it was for all the guys on pit road, and quite a, quite a, quite a deal. I mean, it really was. But he, he was the only man all the years I went over pit wall and changed tires, jacked and whatever. He was the only man that ever hit me on pit road. <laughs> now, 
you know, Earnhardt, he'd dive at me just to try oh, yeah. to mess up our pit stops and, <laughs> and try to mess me up. Uh-huh. <laughs> I told him, I said, if you ever hit me with that thing, I'm going to let you hold that air wrench. <laughs> uh, so now that was your first, that was your actual first win was with Fireball in 63. Yeah. Now that was the summer race. The now, po- summer race. The yeah, port, that wasn't the 500. That right? wasn't the 500. Yeah. The 500, I was able to win it seven times. Yeah. Involved in it. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I mean, seven, I mean, that's seven Daytona 500s. I mean, that's uh, unheard of. Yeah, I built the engine for seven of them and then crew chief and built the engine for three of them. Wow. Well, I guess that kind of brings us up to, you know, uh, 1983, like we talked about, right? And this is a kind of a, I guess, a you know, a time that we probably have to say something that, you know, it's obviously a sad occurrence what we've heard, but, you know, I heard and I know that you, you know, just alluded to me off the air that um, Cale Yarbrough is not doing well. And, uh, certainly, um, you know, our deepest sympathies and, you know, prayers go out to Cale, uh, down in Timminsville and his wife, uh, and just hope that the family and everything, you know, can, can go the way it needs to go. And, um, I know you had a special, you know, relationship with, with Cale as well and had a lot of great things happen. And, uh, you know, 1983 was, Kind of like a uh, interesting year for me because I had just won the late model sportsman championship and Jackie Johnson and I, we got to come back to Daytona in 1983. We're in the infield watching this first time I'd ever been to Daytona. I'm up in the stands in turn four watching qualifying. And I want you to take us back to what led up to qualifying, uh, with the, the Harry Rainier, Kale Yarborough, uh, race car situation to, to actually do what you guys did there. Well, to start with, you know, Kale come to me in Talladega the year before, and he had done it the year before that. And he said, what else? Damn it. I want to drive that race car. He never used that word. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? He said, no. You know, it was unusual for a driver as his stature to come and want to drive your race car. You know, that was a little like you normally approach them, not them approaching you. <laughs> so I said, are you serious? He said, yeah. And I said, okay. You got the ride, so I know when Harry Rainier came to the racetrack, I said, well, I hired you a driver for next year, and he looked at me like cockeyed, and he said, <laughs> and I could tell him to look in his eyes, who'd you do that over my, over me? <laughs> so I told him, I said, Kale Yarbrough, he said, you're kidding. I said, no, he wants to drive it. <laughs> so anyway, that's how it started. Oh, wow. That's amazing. It's so funny. It's so different than, you know, the way it was done now, right? But like you say, you know, you and, you know, I'll, you got it, you know, I mean, Kale at that time, obviously, I mean, fantastic race car driver and, you know, to have him in your guys' car. And in 1983, tell me about uh, what, what all the, the things that went on, because it was quite involved. Well, to start with, you know, was we'd, we already had the record at Talladega for the first time, car run 200 mile an hour. And my goal was to do it, you know, at Daytona be the first driver, my first car to do it. So, we're in the wind tunnel at Detroit, the GM wind tunnel. And when we finished uh, eight hours in the wind tunnel, they said, if you tell me how much horsepower you got, and then we'll figure out what place you can go to Daytona. And I told them, and the drag numbers we had in the wind tunnel, I said, that thing ought to run 203 mile an hour. I said, okay. So anyway, we go to Daytona, and uh, I never... Be- you know, I knew Kale since the Holman Moody days because he was always in there, you know, bagging John Holman for a ride mm-hmm. and building engine crates for us to ship engines in. 
And I remember on the weekend, if we had any time off, you know, he and I and our family, we'd water ski down on Lake Wiley. And we'd become good friends at that point. But anyway, 45 flat was 200 mile an hour. And he's out there running 45, 70s and 80s. And I think, what is wrong with that race car? Because I'm used to Bobby and Buddy and people like that. Second lap, you know what you got. Yeah. But he, but he didn't tell me a sandbag. But finally, the day before qualifying, he told me, he said, we're okay. He said, I've never been in nothing this fast. He said, don't you touch it. You leave it alone. He said, this thing got so much horsepower down the back stretch. When I run over those ripples, it actually spins the tires. And he said, but when I go and turn three, it's like you hold a needle and me trying to thread it. Oh, wow. So anyway, we get ready to qualify. And I set the spoiler, and I think I had it at 20 degrees. Back then, you might as well took it off because it's a notchback car. And in the wind tunnel, you know, it had lift to start yeah, with. Exactly. Yep. <coughs> so this was, so what body style was this? This was. It's a Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo. But it had with the, a notchback. With a notchback. So right. like you say, the spoiler deal, it's creating lift because it just rolls off the back window and lifts the back of the car up. That's right. right. That's right. So anyway, you know, it, uh, he comes out there and he makes it down a little more. So I said, well, you're driving it. It's whatever you want to do with it. Tw- less than 20 <laughs> degrees, right? <laughs> Holy moly. The first lap was 40, 44, 70 something. I remember that. And I knew that we broke 200 miles an hour. Yeah. And then going down the back stretch, the guy was up in the, in the stand or up in the, where they was at the time in the cars. They said, you guys think that's something? Because they were jumping up and down, finally broke 200 miles an hour at, at Daytona. Said, you think that's something? He's on a clip night, 203. But then when he went into turn three, she decided to leave and she become airborne and then it flipped and and then landed back on its wheel and dick Beatty come and picked me up on pit road and went up out to the car and the, and the guys one of the guards was standing beside the car and he was back on its wheels and he said don't think hell i know they break 200 mile an hour I, so, I, I, was, you know, <laughs> I remember i was in the stands in turn four jackie and i and i watched that first lap and then, i mean when it come on the deal you know 200 over 200 miles an hour and he's taking his second lap. And then that thing just picks up. I mean, going in turn three up there, the thing just picks up. And I mean, it's like a feather in the air. And then it's, you know, it crashes, tumbles, right? And then you say it comes down on all four. And you look at that and you're like, I mean, a young kid, you know, first time at Daytona, you're in like total amazement, right? And you are mesmerized by this place. And then the sheer fact of what just happened, right? And yeah, I was, I was. I knew that this was something I had to do and wanted to do. And that was really the moment that I knew I had to run and get to the Daytona 500. So, so anyways, what, what did Beatty say after that? Well, anyway, uh, we go in the infield care center and they've got him in there with the top of his uniform down, checking him out. And he looked up at me and he said, well, you done everything but one thing. I said, what was that? And he said, you didn't put the controls in so I could fly. <laughs> so anyway, we go back in the garage area and the first one I ran into was, Bill France Jr. He said, Waddell, if you'll fix that car, you've already got the record at 200 mile an hour, and you can stay here, work 24 hours a day up until Thursday, and you'll have to start the 125, and then you can run a couple out, pull back in, and keep working on it. So anyway, Harry Renier came to me, and he said, my jet's sitting out here, and guy from KMT Farm told me his jet was sitting out there. The people at GM had already contacted me down at Daytona and said, well, anything you need for parts, we'll have them down there in the morning for you. So anyway, Kale had had me hire three of the guys that worked with MC Anderson 
because that's where he was at before mm-hmm. he came with us. And uh, so I walk over to them, and they looked at their watch, said, happy hour is going to be in three hours, and we're going to be at happy hour. We're not going to work on that race car. We're not going to fix it. Well, that was the biggest mistake I ever made because our Bill France woman fixed it. We've got the record, and, you know, we could go up, we could fix it. But anyway, you know, I didn't, couldn't do it by myself, so I needed that everybody's help involved. So the guys really, they just, they weren't going to help you fix the car. They they said they're going to got happy hours coming, yep. and they're taking off. So you, here you are, you're sitting in the wreck race car, and the only recourse you have is what? Well, I... I know we've got that Pontiac Le Mans, which we'd already turned in. It was a show car then. So I called my son and told him to see if he could work out something with somebody to get it down there. And then this Roger Legion that worked with us there in the engine room, he he had a no, he'd run a dirt track car. So he had a trailer and a pickup truck. So they brought it down there on that. From Charlotte? Yeah. Yeah. And they, brought it, they had it down there the next morning and we, put it through inspection. I remember we went out there and qualified. We didn't do nothing to it to make it go fast. And then he only run 195. Then. So what motor did you, was you had, did it have a motor <laughs> in it and you ran that motor? Yeah. Or, yeah. So no, when I never even touched that race car, it, the engine was still in it and everything. Yeah. I ended up sailing to Grand Adcock, the race car. Yep. So anyway, you know, we, everything goes okay with that one. And then the start of the 500, you know, it was, I, you know, it still wasn't the car we had that shell. I say, well, no comparison because the effort wasn't put into it. Yeah. When he come down there to the last, and Kilyard, but he had been running up front quite a bit that day, and then he slung shot by those guys down the back stretch and won the race. Yeah, amazing, amazing, yeah. right? To go through all that kind of adversity, right, and have to make choices. You're kind of forced to make choices. It really wasn't the choices you really wanted to do, but to do that and still come out and win. Daytona 500. But like I said, whenever we run out of gas with Bobby Austin in 82, and then, but uh, not fix that race car, two of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my life. Yeah. It felt like it did. The two things that got away from me. Yeah. Wow. So, so you, so what happens uh, that, so that year, 82, with you got that year with Kale in 82, and then 83. 83, I mean, yeah, 83. And you're with Kale again in 84. Is that right, correct? Right. So tell me, like from there, like you have, how long do you have Kale with Harry? And then when do you make the move to Hendrick Motorsports? And cause that, is there a long progression through that period of time or is it relatively short? Period no, we won 80, 83 and 84 and, and then things were coming to an end. You know, I could tell the interest that Harry Rainier had wasn't there. And, and, uh, every time we'd win Daytona, uh, Rick Hendricks would be on top of a motorhome out there next to Victor Lane hollering at me and said, one of these days, I'm going to own you. <laughs> so anyway, you know, I ended up, Rick had called and wanted to know if I'd come to work for him. And, and uh, he said, and, and we'll get Daryl Walter to drive a race car. So that was 1985-ish? And that would have been 84. 84. 80, no, it had been 85. 85, yeah. Yeah. So you got so that's the that's the start with you and Daryl yeah. at Henrik Motorsports, right? Right. But that you know that didn't turn out to be a good marriage. Yeah, you guys, you just you guys, you guys didn't really click, right? I no. mean, because at that time, Daryl is he's Jaws. He's he's pretty. You know, he's won some races. He's got a, you know um, you know a bit of arrogance towards what, and he knows what he wants, and he wants it his way. Is that correct? 
Pretty much. Yeah. Yep, so. There is a different deal. I, you know, and that's another mistake I made. I remember Tim Richmond, he was driving with Harry Hyde. With Harry, yeah. And he'd come by the shop. He's on high, Highway 115, and he'd come by the shop, and he'd stop in on his way over to the Hendrick Motorsports. And he said, what do you? Come on. Let's go out here and get my car, and we'll go downtown to see the Chevrolet with Rick Hendrick and tell him I'm going to come over here, and we're going to sit Daryl over with Harry Hyde. He come three or four times and begged me to do that, mm-hmm. and I didn't know him and Harry wasn't yet long, but evidently I figured it out. But anyway, I always wish I went through that. Well, it would have been interesting. Isn't it funny how you know? I think everyone you know in the sport you know comes down to conscious choices and decisions, right? I mean, you know, there's there's certain things that you look back on, you wish that you know if I had done that, what would that, like you talked about, you know, the Roger Penske thing and then this Tim Richmond thing, right? Right. What ifs, the old what ifs. Oh right? yeah. What would you, what would have happened? How would, how would things have been different? What would have been and what wouldn't have been, right? Right. Yeah. Huh. You know, I guess I kind of felt a loyal to Daryl and didn't want to leave and then how is that going to work out? Because it would have been a major deal. Right. Because you had sponsors involved and team members and, you know, oh, it'd have been an interesting. I wish I'd have done it though. Yeah. So after after you decide or whatever, how does it happen that you don't with you're not with Daryl? Is this something that comes with between you and Rick? And where do you go? And who are you directing? Because you had Jeff Bodine, you had yeah, Rudd, yeah, Ricky Rudd. After yeah. That, yeah. So that's what you did at that point. Yeah. yeah. How did that happen? You know, it, well, that was something we all agreed on to do, and I got you. you know, and then you know, we had Ricky and we. We had Jeff and, you know, both good drivers. We won with both of them. Yeah. But it was interesting. Oh, I'm sure. Because, I mean, that was the time that Jeff was having a, a major deal. Uh, Jeff Bodine was having that major deal. We were running, running up front, winning races, and him and Earnhardt having a lot of uh, oh, rival, yeah. the big rivalry, right? I mean, that's when that was all happening and transpiring. Yeah, they'd tear up some race cars. I know that. Yeah. 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 He could drive, though, couldn't he? He was. <laughs> he was amazing. He was an amazing race car driver. Yeah. Yep. He yep. was that. He was that. And he was, I mean, he was tenacious. He he wanted it in the worst way, right? And I oh, mean, yeah. So that, and that was quite the rivalry, quite the battle, the between, epic battles between him <laughs> and Earnhardt, right? Oh, yeah. That are still chronicled today, right? I mean, <laughs> they and, you were right in the, and you were right in the middle of that. Yeah, I was able to fix those race cars. Yeah. <laughs> And they'd tear them up too. Oh, I am sure. I know. I remember watching that whole thing, right? It was amazing what was going on, you know, because, uh, yeah, incredible times in the sport, right? So, you know, uh, throughout your Hendricks deal, so you, you were with Jeff and then, then you get Ricky. How does the, how does the deal with Ricky, um, go and what, what cars were those? Well, you know, those regular Chevrolet's, but yeah. anyway, he was, Ricky was a great guy to work with. He, yeah. you know, especially when you take him to short tracks and road courses and, you know, he was amazing. And then, you know, we were literally won that race at Sears Point that time. And they took it away from us. Mm-hmm. And what was that? What was the reason behind that? Oh, I remember that. I remember that race. Yep. All right. Go ahead. I, well, anyway, they said Ricky come down, come into the white and then bumped Davy Allison. Yeah. Out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it wasn't, you could tell it wasn't intentionally. Yeah. That was unprecedented. I yeah. mean, really, I mean, to take a waste, a race away from him just because he bumped him out of the way. And I mean, it wasn't even like flagrant. It was just no. a little bump deal. Right. And they ended up Didn't taking the win away and give it to him. And nowadays, look at nowadays, 
I mean, they're moving guys, wrecking guys, wadding them up and not taking anything away, right? So how times have changed, right? Well, that was after, you know, the Earnhardt Bodine deal. And yeah. anyway, I remember uh, uh, they'd tell us in, in the meetings and before the race said, you know, with Dick Beatty, he'd say, boys, just keep it, keep it sanitary to the last couple of laps, then you can go at it. Yeah. <laughs> but this was coming to the white flag. And, and anyway, Dick Beatty wasn't out there. And I remember he called me on Monday morning and he said, Well, if I'd have been there, you wouldn't have lost that race. You literally won the race. You just got it took away from you. Yeah. That one hurts. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So that was what year was that? Uh the the days of, of Jeff Bodine and Ricky Rudd. What can can you give me an idea what the actual years He's seven eighty eight, right in there. Somewhere yeah. in there. Yeah, because I remember eighty eight I was my first full season with Purelator in the cup series i'd been running limited schedules in 86 and uh 87 limited schedule there and then 88 was my first full-time time there and you know that was uh that, i think that was the year that actually i think kale actually retired i believe uh because he was you know still i still would race against kale and uh and at that point but 80 so you here you are you're at 86 or 87 88 range and that's with yeah. ricky is that point and jeff right yeah yeah those are some exciting times of racing the sport Oh yeah, but that's about it. Yeah. So now, <clears throat> when when did you? So right after Ricky Rudd, that was like, cause that was like, um, was that nineteen? Uh, that was eighty nine, ninety ish. My thing is ninety. Ninety. Yeah, I think you were with him in ninety. That's when I won Daytona, and and then you guys, and then from there in nineteen ninety, did you were you still with Hendricks any longer, or did you end up going to like? Um, uh, Jim Matei for a bit, or were you involved with Jim Matei? No, Larry no. Hedrick. Hedrick, Larry Hedrick. That's yeah. right, Larry Hedrick. Right. So, because I remember I drove a few races for Larry, um, back in in those days as well. But so I remember you were in the when I went in there one day, you were in the engine shop in the back, and you would and I had walked through there and I saw you there. So that was in there in the um like ninety one ish, right? Somewhere right? in there. Yeah, somewhere in there. So how long were you with Larry? Oh. Uh, couple of years yeah and was that pretty much like when you kind of got out of, of of engine building at that point and the yeah, chief me and my son greg was building the engines in yep is that right yeah so that was through, i just become general manager i got you so that was so that was the early 90s right. pretty much right and was that really about uh when you kind of pulled away from the sport or you know opportunities what, what what was the situation there yeah i pretty much pulled out of it and you know i guess i lost interest i don't know mm -hmm. so it's kind of i mean it's kind of run its course at that point right it, now, the sport is changing yeah. there and you just kind of pretty much had kind of pulled away from that yeah well let's talk a little bit about you know you know what all those all those wins all those engines that you'd built. Um, I mean, what part, I mean, if you look back at your, at, cause obviously we're going to touch on what happens later on here, right? Um, your induction into the NASCAR hall of fame in 2020. But, you know, from this point on, I mean, were you, you when you look back at your career and all the things that, you know, you had done and, and you saw the, how the sport, came you know uh from where it came from and then where it went to i mean what part of it was probably the most enjoyable for you was was the actual engine building aspect 
what you cared and, and had the most passion for or, or what? Yeah, it was good. You know, I love building engines. You know, it was a challenge and I love doing it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, finally, I guess you just finally get tired and wore out doing it. You've done it so long. Yeah. And, uh, but I enjoyed doing that and I enjoyed being crew chief, you know, mm-hmm. that was a different deal. It depends on who's driving the race car, whether it makes it, you know, a good, good deal or not. Right. So in like the early nineties, obviously, you know, things kind of changed, right? You have the influx of radios in the cars and you have spotters in the cars and, you know, you have a lot of different things coming in there and the sports evolving, right? And then all the notoriety, because I remember 1990, obviously that was when the filming of Days of Thunder was taking place at Daytona and the excitement, you know, within the sport was escalating. You know, mm-hmm. you had a lot of influx of everybody, you know, all these different, you know, sports figures coming in and wanting to own teams. And, uh, you know, you were doing all kinds of things with all the different sports, you know, functions and activities. And, you know, the notoriety of the sport really took off through the 90s, right? And, right. and, and really, you know, kind of got a, a lot of um, notoriety and a lot of interaction with other things. And it was just a time of the sport really taking off. Did you, like, like, were you in the infancy of that? The big change was obviously when, when they went to restrictor plates at like Daytona and Talladega, right? And so many of our you know, listeners, we talk about, you know, the times of restrictor plates, you know, the time of the radial tire. When did things like, you know, change? Because here you are, you're running, you know, a bias ply tire. And then, you know, the whole dynamic seemed to really change when all this started happening. And I mean, the restrictor plate, did you, did you have a lot of involvement in those early deals of having to deal with the restrictor plate and, and what kind of things did you have to go through to do all that? I remember when he come along with that and I remember telling Bill France, I said, you just opened up cheaters paradise. Cause that's what's going to happen now. Cause you, people going to figure out how to get around that restricting there to going into the engine. So, you know, we worked on it to try on the legal side of it and try to make it the best we could. And we came up with some things that, that actually did improve the engine quite a bit. Yeah. But still, if these people are chitting and, and getting hired in a different ways, you know, which we people win the Daytona 500, then you would hear in the next few weeks how they done it. Right. Yeah. They were nothing legal about it. Yeah. For me, <clears throat> I mean, that was the sadness of all that period of time. You know, because like you say, the innovation of it was now was the cheating aspect. That's it, it. it was all about how do we leak air into a motor? Because, you know, when you're restricting the amount of air, I mean, air is horsepower. And when you were able to find a way to get air into the engine itself, then it made enormous amounts of horsepower. And that was what the determining factor was for a lot of wins in those, in those 90s of uh, era. I mean, so, I mean, you look at, like, you know, the little, and on, where the carburetor bolt down, you know, they had those, um, you know, the actual screws that, you know, that actually would go down in the manifold, right? And they would turn those and those would let oh, air yeah. in, right? And then they had the, you know, the different sealing mechanism on the uh, clusters that were in the manifolds, right? That would slide up and down. And then they had, you know, you know, holes in the, va- in the valve seats. And, and then they were using, you know, different things from, uh, you know, the, uh, like the four car or whatever was doing a lot of things with pumping air in the motor through a pump that was on the rear end or things. I mean, and then people actually changing, you know, the displacement of certain holes in the engine and stuff. So there was just, 
an enormous amount of innovation and cheating and going on in those times, which, you know, you know, they, they, NASCAR really had, you know, um, a major difficulty policing all of this. And you never knew, you know, you could always tell, right. You knew as a race car driver, as a crew chief, what the cars could do in normal circumstances in the draft. And then you would see things that couldn't happen or shouldn't happen. And you knew, and it was, it was disheartening for me to see those things in that period of time. Is that kind of how you felt about it? Because Cheating was just not what you wanted to be involved in. No, I become to hate it then because, you know, it was the way people was doing it. You'd, it wouldn't be a week or two later and you'd find out exactly how they cheated with the Daytona 500. Yeah. There wasn't none of them legal then. Didn't yeah. sound like it anyway. And there's a lot of things on the people on the take. It was always the words of all those things. And there was just a lot of underlining reasons why people were able to do the things they did. Right. And that just seemed to escalate in other forms of the, of the sport and the other areas. Right. It became just the thing. Now it is like you are going to no holes barred every gray area. We are going to dive into those areas there and cheat and do whatever was necessary to win races. Is that how you saw it? And they would. And then like funny thing about it, you find out exactly what they're doing. But Bill France came to me before they come with that plate. And he said, what else? There's some way you can do this. I said, yeah, downsize the engine and put a 390 carburetor on it. And I went, and, you know, the next race he came in, and you figured out, I said, oh, here's the bore and the stroke you need to do. And he wanted to keep the original parts that you was running in, not have to go buy a bunch of different blocks and right. heads and all that. And I said, you're right, here's how you can do it. And, uh, but anyway, there's two other guys, there's like team owners that, nah, let's just leave it as it is and, and they were the stricter plates. You know, which I told him and told him, I said, well, that's cheater's paradise. And I said, you just eliminated me. Yeah. So like you say, there is always a defining moment in somebody's career. Um, you know, the path that you've chosen and what you as an individual with integrity or character, you, you know, pretty much built your, your foundation of your, you know, existence and your career on. Right. And I think it's, it's, it needs to be said, right, that, you know, that's all you have, in my opinion, is your integrity and your character. And you stood on those laurels. And, you know, the, that's, that's to be commended. I don't think a lot of people, obviously, you look back at all the people that didn't. And it was all about, you know, the winning, the money and, and all of that. And they just, you know, they were looking to go beyond, you know, what was really right at that period of time. And it, I, in my opinion, like it set a precedent in the sport. And to this day, it has continued. You can see every week there's something going on with, you know, altering a spec part and a piece and the fines and the escalations. I mean, it really is, in my opinion, a detriment to this, what the sport really was, you know, in its infancy, right? I mean, it was all about bringing, you know, everybody had the opportunity to bring a car to the racetrack, you know, and give you a chance to go race against the best of the best. And there was not that cheating aspects you know i'm sure people did it you know junior and those guys are all known for all their things right but like you say it was a time that you know i look back on and you know not fondly about all of the stuff that was going on and it sounds like that was the way you felt about it yeah you know there's so many things you could do legally to get and to make the cars go fast you didn't really need to cheat because they they wasn't inspected in the like they are now but anyway, whenever they got the, you know, you know, you know, you couldn't win legal. There's no way you could, you know, and I, that's when I lost interest in it, period. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing that it comes to that, 
that point in time, right? And and somebody like yourself who had been there since the infancy of it could see it so so plainly, right? And you know, again, I guess at that point it's there they make choices, and I think part of that was the fact that NASCAR really was at a period of time where they never really did anything themselves as a sanctioning body. They were very reactive mm-hmm. to what happens, right? So like if somebody was going fast, you know, again, like they said, they came to you and, you know, with the rule of the iron fist, you're, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, right? You're stinking up the show. Right. And then, you know, that was really what their whole deal was. This was an entertainment business. It was a show. And then they make decisions because, and I think that you look at the people that were there at that time running the show, they were taking like when they had rule changes and they would take them to the actual teams to build the cars and do the things, make the templates. Right. And then once they start having to come up with templates after templates, after templates, then that just opens up, you know, the mindset that that now they have to find all the areas within all these confines and restrictions. Right. And that just led to the more escalation of the cheating and looking at ways to circumvent the rules. And like you say, I think it's uh, it's set a precedent that has never changed and has been the norm uh, in motor racing from there. And for me, it was sad. I mean, we used to bring, you used to see what, 80 cars show up for an event? And oh, yeah. And you'd send 40 home, right? That was, I mean, that's unheard of now, obviously, right? But that was the part that I thought was so intriguing about the sport because anybody in the nation, the local short track guy from the West Coast could physically build a car could come to the race and try to qualify and race against the best of the best. And that is not the way it is today. Yeah. In the sixties and seventies, you go to Daytona and, and you, you know, I don't know where they parked all those race cars. There's so many of them down there trying to make the Daytona 500. I know. And then they'd take 42 cars, I think, start the field. With so the 42. best of the best at that time, it was really, it was truth. It was the best of the best, the best cars right. that were there and the best drivers that were there. And you you really performed on your own laurels, right? Right. And that was what the sport, the epitome of the sport was all about. You got the opportunity to come there and fight for a position legally against, you know, what you brought, what your innovation was, what you could do or what you could, you know, pay for or get help for. But you had a real shot at coming there and running uh, against the best. Oh, yeah. You know, I remember going to, to, and the last time I really remember seeing that kind of car count was when they had the inaugural brickyard in 94. Uh, I went there and there was 80 cars show up there and, you know, end up, you make the race. And to me, that was really, yeah, you felt like, well, you really did something when you made an event of that magnitude with that many cars showing up, right? Like you felt like that, you know what, you were one of the best at that oh, point yeah. in time, right? And you were proficient at your trade. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, as a sports, you know, as a race car driver, and a person looking to come and, and, you know, show what you've learned. And that was what it was for me. I think passion, the desire to prove that you were somebody that could come out and do a job proficiently. And that's what my dad, you know, instilled in me. And to hear you talk about that, I mean, that's the part that meant the most, right? For you. I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. So it was a, it was a, a sad time to see, you know, you know, people talk about the Haiti of the sport and you know, we were averaging, what, 191,000 people per event through the 90s. So the sport had a lot of notoriety, but it had a lot of downfalls. And I think it really set itself up for its demise and the downturn. And obviously, the world changes and the downturns of the sport happen. But 
they kind of set a precedent for themselves, you know? And I think at that time, you know, um, yeah, I think a lot of people looked at it differently. Right. And, uh, you don't really know who was doing what and the reasons why. Yeah. It all changed whenever it started changing, whenever Bobby Allison almost went into the grandstand at, at, uh, Talladega. I remember seeing that and that car was going in and thank good they'd put cables up. And when the cables tightened up, it threw it back in the racetrack. Yeah. Because if it hadn't been film cables, they don't tell how many hundred people that it killed. But yeah. anyway, then the lawyers got involved yeah. and said, we can't go 200 no more. And Bill France, his whole goal was to have them all come across, start finish line together. If he could do way to do that. And when he put the restrictor plates on them and all, you know, it's pretty much what he done. Yeah. It packed them all together. Yeah. And they were trying to, but that also created large, large crashes and took out lots of, of, uh, you know, cars, you know, in the, in the field. Right. And oh, yeah. when you talk about Bobby's deal at Talladega, I think, you know, you look back at, you know, the, there's always moments and times in the sports, right. When something happens, right. And a car, you know, formula one, that went through the same thing when cars went up in there and, and killed a bunch of people. Right. And, um, you know, I think, you know, those, those are times when you have a, you have, um, a major change in a sport, you know, and something major happens like that. And that was, like, as you said, that was a time that I think changed things forever. Right. And it did the 200 mile an hour mark, I think for, uh, you know, for the United States and you think about world racing in general, we were all infatuated with the automobile, right. At an early age. I mean, that was what my dad drag raced in the early days and in infancy in San Diego and, you know, the innovation that went on, but you know, that that thing running 200 miles an hour was a milestone in, in stock car racing right and having a projectile go that fast and then to have it almost go in the stands and kill people right like you say it was a wake-up call and nascar had to make you know decisions you know based on that and mm -hmm. but you just felt like that there were alternatives they were just very haste hasty in in going a direction that ultimately would set a set the tone for you know, the way that things were and then would ca ultimately cause, uh, you know, the escalation in, in people trying to circumvent that thing. Right. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So amazing. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I look back at, I look back at, you know, the things in the sport and, you know, you, I've been in it a long time too. And, you know, I, I you fall, I, you know, I remember, you know, you lose your ride and you look for another ride and then, you know, it's, and for me at that time is, it was life or death, you know, it, to be in a ride. I mean, if you didn't have a ride late in the year and you had Daytona looming, you know, you were just about to pull your hair out and, you know, wanted to, you know, you were probably the worst individual to be around, you know, and I, you know, I remember those days and, you know, the days of not, you know, getting in driving hurt. And, you know, I mean, uh, you just, you did what you had to do because, you know, you were not going to let somebody else drive your race car. You were going to stay a part of this sport and, you know, it was a different dynamic back then, you know, I mean, you know, hitting concrete walls and nowadays mm -hmm. hitting soft walls. I mean, you know, I guess there's a lot that's changed and I wanted to get your perspective on where we're at today. I mean, you know, you've been around a long time. You see where we're at with this next gen car and, you know, you were coming in our shop all the time when we were building those cars and, and doing things. I mean, like you've seen it from the early days. I mean, what do you see now in the sport? What do you see the racing like, in your opinion? Well, you know, it took the mechanic out of it pretty much. You know, just cookie-cutter cars, basically. You know, they just give you the parts and pieces, and you stick it together, and, and then they've got it, you know, 
you know, down to thousands that you can work with as far as, you know, changing anything on that race car and mm-hmm. moving anything around. So, you know, I don't believe in the cheating by no means. You know, I don't believe that. But anyway, it it's a sport that's really changed from when I was involved in it. And I, I wouldn't want to be involved in it anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's, when you look back at, you know, working the way you worked on cars, you know, getting parts, you were, you know, you were making your own parts, your A-frames and your upper A-frames, and you're working on the geometries and the things, you're putting the bodies together with stock parts with that bumpers, right? Oh, I always yeah. believed that when they got rid of the bumper and a secondary air dam, and they went to that valence, it seemed like things just changed there too. You know I mean? The, you think about how much the aero changed these cars and, you know, the dirty air and all the aspects back then when you had all the air going underneath those cars and the bumpers there, right? You know, they were a handful to drive, you know, and, uh, but it really put the hand, the, you know, the, the race in the driver's hands and then the, the amount of horsepower you had, you could use it and you had to drive the car. I mean, they were up on top of themselves and, you know, they danced around at Daytona and Talladega when you were going 206 and 207 and, and they were, it was tough to make yourself, you know, drive off in there, right? Wide open without, uh, without no power. I mean, that was quite a task, you know, in the cars, when you got over, when you got over 199, 200 miles an hour, business picked up, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, it was, it was, there was a threshold there that the cars really, you could sense, you know, how much speed you were going. It really did, you know, the cars, how the air, how, how much excessive movements the cars had. And then nowadays, you know, you drive these cars now and, you know, they don't have, they didn't have that kind of power. You're on 550 horsepower back then. They still went, you know, at 550 horsepower, they're going 200 miles an hour. Right. So they're doing it now with a lot more aerodynamic capabilities and things. But like you say, the racing's changed the way that they beat on people and wreck people for wins and all that. And I mean, it really, it really is hard for somebody that's kind of grown up in the eighties, in the nineties, you know, and the, you know, and you obviously from the sixties and the seventies, right. To see what's going on. It really makes it more difficult to really enjoy it. And, and I guess pay attention to it to the degree that we have and in, in what we wanted to. Right. I mean, so that's just the way I feel about it right now. It's a lot harder to, for me to really be engaged in what's going on. Yeah. Like I said, I wouldn't want to be involved with it, but you know, I still watch the races, but, yeah, I uh, you know, I I enjoy that part of it. You yeah. know, the competitiveness of it. Yeah, you know what they're going through. You know <laughs> what they're doing. You listen to the terminology, right? And you can draw some parallels. You know, you you still have that that link to it that is very important because I mean, we grew up in it. We we've loved it. You've had enormous passion for it. You know, and then you know there you are, right? You know, but let's let's move forward from that. I want to talk about the Hall of Fame. I mean, 2020 was a, um, a great year for you. I mean, to, to get nominated, uh, you know, I mean, you basically, what, I, I think it was Joe Gibbs, it was Tony Stewart, Bobby Labonte, um, I think, uh, yeah, and, and yourself. There were right. five inducted in 2020. Right. I know that was a, a very emotional um, time for you, being inducted that night, you know, Give me your thoughts on that night, and, and I guess how much that meant to you to be recognized in this manner. Well, you know, it's something you never expected. And furthermore, I always said, you know, don't vote on me if you don't feel like I deserve it, because I don't want to be in there and people saying, well, how did he get in there? Why did he? And, and I didn't want that. So, But 
what an honor it was to get elected into it. And, you know, the votes that I was able to get was, you know, very impressive. So, you know, a lot of people that was on the panel, you know, told me about it afterwards and said, you don't believe that every, what everybody was saying and, and how it went down. So, but, uh, you know, I always looked at that as, you know, that was owners and, and drivers, not crew chiefs and engine builders. And to get in under that, you know, condition was quite an honor. Well, I think, you know, I've always, you know, been a firm believer in this because my father instilled that in me that you're only as good as the people you have working for you, right? And my dad said, you'll never be the best race car driver in the world, but you need to be the most well-rounded. You need to surround yourself with the most, you know, competent people you can because they're going to put you in a position to look good and perform well. And I think, you know, so many times, you know, everybody gets the drivers and those people get the, uh, you know, the accolades for that. But ultimately, it's really what you're sitting in, you know, and I mean, we all have made choices as drivers moving to different teams, thinking it's going to be bigger and better. And perception in the marketplace was, you know, this is the way it's going to be the better deal. And ultimately, it was really about the people and really about how you dealt with each other, how they believed in you and that camaraderie and that, you know, that, that working relationship. Right. And so to be, to have your peers, you know, understand what you had done from the building race engines, crew chiefing, being mechanics, you know, calling the shots, being a strategist, all those elements. You're the reason that all those guys have those Daytona 500 wins and those wins themselves and those poles. And so I think you have to realize, and I think a lot of people do that, you know, there are people behind the scenes that really are the reasoning why we've had the opportunities we've had. And I know I feel the same way about Buddy Parrott you know, giving me the opportunity to win the Daytona 500 and Bob Whitcomb. It really, if it wasn't for those and all those guys, you know, Robbie mm -hmm. G and, you know, all those guys that were there, you know, that, you know, helped make it happen. Um, I'm so, you know, proud to say that, you know, I had a great group of people and Richie Gilmore, you know, who went on to great things at ECR, you know, and, and uh, DEI and stuff. So, yeah, you, you, you have to feel really good about that. I know it was emotional for your wife, Barbara, too. I mean, you know, you guys, you do, they don't, people don't realize how much goes into, you know, a career of that magnitude. You talk about the nights and the days and the weeks and the months and the sacrifices. There's always a compromise and a sacrifice. And Barbara uh, and your children made that as well. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah. So <laughs> it was an emotional time for you and her that night, I know. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, a lot of people don't realize how much goes into a career and how much it takes. And uh, I'm so proud, you know, that I've got to experience your times and what you've done and learn more about. And I've always loved the sport and who made the sport. And you are one of those individuals. And to still be able to have, you know, our conversations at our shop when I was at Starcom and every time I got a chance to spend time talking to you, it meant a lot to me. And I wanted you to know that. And that's why I wanted you uh, as my first guest uh, on this podcast, which I just want to, I want people to hear your story and I want it to be chronicled for a lifetime. And I wanted, you know, I wanted you to be my guy. And, uh, I want to thank you for coming on here today and sharing these stories. I mean, these are things that not a lot of people probably got a chance to hear, but <laughs> they should have, and they needed to. Well, thank you so much, Derek. I've enjoyed doing it. Thank well, you again. Well, thank you so much. It's been a, a dear pleasure. And this is, I just want my listeners out there to know, you know that this is a true gift 
that what you got to listen to in these two last two podcasts and i hope that you listen to them and take them wholeheartedly and uh, understand more about the sport where we came from and who the key individuals were that were a part of it so with that i'm going to say thank you and we'll see you next time thank you so much for listening did this episode give you some value if so please follow us on facebook at Derek cope and instagram at Derek cope double zero and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.